The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. The text this morning is from Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14 through chapter 4 and verse 3. Ephesians 3, beginning at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name, uh, as has been said, is Paul Delahunt, and I serve as an elder here downtown. It's a a great joy and a privilege to preach God's word to you this morning as we continue our series, Strengthened by Grace. And the title of this morning's message is Strengthened by Grace for Love. Strengthened by Grace for Love. Because we're too weak for God's love. Are we not? Isn't that part of the point of the passage that we just heard? I mean, it's a glorious passage, but isn't part of the point that we're weak and we need strength? We can experience, we can understand the shoreline, if you will, but we aren't strong swimmers. We don't have the spiritual fitness to get out beyond the point where the waves hide the beach from view and we're out where God's love is broad and deep and high and wide. And similarly, in our love for one another, all too often, we fall short. We run out of room. We run out of strength. Things can seem quite nice in calm weather, if you will, but as soon as a relational storm breaks out, all too often, the flesh drowns our love. And we see that in our homes. We see that at work. And we see it in the church. And certainly, in the last several years, we've seen increasing factionalism and division in the broader evangelical world. And we would do well to remember with the Apostle James that where we find disorder, typically, jealousy and selfish ambition are displacing love somewhere in the shadows. Alexander Strauch is a Christian author and he's written several books 
to help the church. Uh, one of his most famous is probably biblical eldership, which we've used here at Bethlehem. It's fairly well known. And last year, in the midst of our strife here at Bethlehem, he sent a gift to all the elders here at, across the three campuses. He sent three of his books, and in January, I picked up one and read it. And it's this one. Love or die. Love or die. Christ's wake-up call to the church. And it's really good, and I would just highlight how thin it is, and, and a third of it is a study guide, so it's very readable. Here's how the book starts. My first encounter with the biblical principles of love started in a negative way during my early years as a born-again Christian. I was surprised when I saw true believers fight, display angry attitudes, and separate from one another. To me, as a young believer, fighting among older godly believers was quite discouraging. And I would guess that that has been a similar experience for many of you here. I think of myself. I grew up in a series of churches that were gospel-loving, gospel-proclaiming, biblically sound. And as I grew older, I became aware there were many sharp disagreements. People were hurt. Things didn't always end well. Now, of course, there's a lot of factors anytime you have that kind of situation, right? But one of them is that love is weak. Love is weak. And Strauch's book is focused on the church in Ephesus. How does a church, a vibrant church like Ephesus, get to the point where the, the word of the Lord to them is this? But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And so, so there it is. Love or die. And so as we enter a new chapter of our life together as Bethlehem Baptist Church, it's a question of just sort of perennial relevance for any believer and certainly for us. Shall we love or shall we die? Another question. What do you want to be known for? What do we want to be known for? You know, whether we like it or not, we're going to remain a well-known church for, I don't know, some time. When we have trouble, people write about it. So what do we wish we were known for? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Wouldn't it be an awesome testimony if our reputation was see how well they love each other? But weak love for each other is just a symptom, isn't it? The problem is that all too often our grasp on the love of God for us, his ocean of love for us, it's just so weak. And this has often been on my heart as we've walked through the last couple of years. And so when I knew that I was going to preach this sermon in this series, Ephesians 3 jumped out to me as a place I wanted to go to. So we'll start there. We'll see how love is in need of strength. And then we'll move into some extended application and land in First John. So would you pray with me? Lord, I ask that you would send out your word among us now. 
Would you accomplish the purpose that you have for it? Would you help us to know your love? And I pray for us. May we be doers of this word and not hearers only. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, love is in need of strength. And so you can go ahead and look at verse 16 there in Ephesians chapter 3. What does Paul ask for? That according to the riches of his glory, God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And so there it is. Paul is asking that the believers would be strengthened by grace. Because that's what it means for God to grant something, that little word there. You can do a search in the New Testament and over and over again we see God granting something. And just about every time it's a very explicit and obvious reference to his grace. Grace is granted. Grace is given. Grace is a gift. Father, would you strengthen us by your grace? Now we're to be strengthened for a purpose so that we might be able to bear more of God's love. Like we said at the outset, we're by the shoreline. We're in the shallows. We're comfortable where the sand is right beneath our feet. And as Paul goes on here, he's pulling us out. He's pulling us steadily out where the waters are deeper and more powerful. And so notice how Paul does this. His prayer has two acts that are mirrors of each other. Verses 16 and the first part of 17 make up the first act. And then the ESV gives us a dash, or depending on your translation, you might have a period or a semicolon, something like that. And then the second act picks up from there and goes down through verse 19. In the first act, God is the one doing most of the actions. God is the subject of the verbs, most of them anyway. Right? Paul asks that God would grant a gift of grace to strengthen the souls of the believers. Why? So that Christ would dwell in our hearts. And as Kenny said so helpfully a few weeks ago, when it comes to being strengthened by grace, God is the one doing the strengthening. We're doing the ones receiving. In the second act, after the dash, the subject switches. And instead of God, now we are the ones who are the subject of the verbs. But other than that, the request mirrors each other. The request is that we might have strength to comprehend and to know the love of Christ so that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. And so as you look at the parallels between Act 1 and Act 2, I think what should become clear is what the goal is. Where is this all heading? And the goal is abiding. The goal is abiding. It's fellowship. It's communion. It's that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. That God in his fullness would fill you up. And when I think of the godliest people I know, I think of people where love is pouring out of them. Love for Christ, love for me, love for those around them. It's like, it's like they've been soaked in the love. It's like they've been swimming in it all the time through many storms, through many dangers and toils and snares. And I think that's what Paul's asking for here. We are called to swim in the love of God all the time, further out, further in. We're called to swim in it all the time, to recognize it and relish it in the 
most challenging of times. Maybe it's just bland circumstances. Maybe it's one of the deepest disappointments you've ever had. Maybe you're suffering in the worst way. But it's this experiential aspect of Paul's request that is so crucial here. I can tell you what Paul is not calling us to do. He's not calling us to sit on the beach and watch. So when you see words like comprehend or know in verses 18 and 19, I mean, if you think that's mainly about identifying facts or being able to write a paper about God's love, that you don't understand. You don't understand. The comprehension, what's the word? What's the word in the text? It has to surpass knowledge. It has to get beyond just bare facts. It has to arrive at indwelling and fullness. It's communion with our Lord. So many of you have experienced cabin life here in Minnesota or Wisconsin. And let's do a little thought experiment. Let's imagine that God decreed that the purpose of your life, the whole purpose, was to enjoy some beautiful lake up north. Okay? And so you found a property, you bought it, built a home. And now that you live there, you and your family glance out the windows every so often just to catch a glimpse of that lake while you're streaming Netflix. Right? Is that what we mean by going to the lake? No, that's not what we mean. But all too often, that's what we do with the love of God. How often is that the case for you? And a scripture comes to mind. This people honors me with their lips and their heart is far from me. And that's just often the case for us. This year, my wife, Heather, and I celebrated 10 years of marriage and actually just a few weeks ago returned from a wonderful time at Lake Tahoe in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And it's just impossible to describe that beauty, so I won't try. But do you know who paid $59 million to have a home on the lake? Mark Zuckerberg did. He and his wife in 2018. And a whole lot of tech execs have followed him there since. And one of the interesting things about the lake is that scientists actually have struggled to chart out the depths It's one of the deepest lakes in the world, second deepest in the United States, and we actually don't know a lot about the lake bottom. And I'm guessing that Mark Zuckerberg doesn't know a lot about the lake bottom either. I wonder how much time he even has to enjoy the beauty that's there in one of his, I don't know how many homes he has, but it's a lot. I wonder if that beautiful creation that he gazes at out of his back window might be the closest to the love of God he ever gets. I hope not. I hope he repents and joins the love of Christ. But what about us? Are we content with 400 feet of shoreline on Lake Tahoe? Or are we listening to the God who calls us into the deeps of his love? C.S. Lewis is so helpful on this in The Weight of Glory. Now he's talking about joy here, but it's just as applicable to love. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an, in, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And so we must grow beyond being half-hearted creatures. Our comprehension must surpass knowledge and arrive at fellowship with God.
Paul is stretching for language here, right? The verses mount up on themselves like a wave, stretching higher and higher. Up, 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 up it goes, and finally they break over us in praise and doxology to this God of love. And as that spray settles into chapter four, Paul says that our lives must shimmer with this love, must shimmer with it. Live in a manner worthy of the calling. It's a majestic vision, isn't it? And it butts up very quickly against the reality of our day-to-day lives and the nitty-gritty that we all live with. Toward the end of the weight of glory, Lewis says this. Meanwhile, the cross comes before the crown, and tomorrow is a Monday morning. The weight of glory is actually a sermon he preached on a Sunday, on a Sunday morning. And so how do we shimmer on a Monday morning? I want to go into three application themes so we might grow in this. And the first theme is love is in the water. Love is in the water. Like a fish needs to be in the water in order to live, so we have to abide in Christ if we want to live. For us, it's love or die, isn't it? And I have three different things in mind with this phrase, and so dive into them with me. The first is when we say, something's in the water around here. You know what I mean? Uh, Here's a couple of examples. In our small group, we are eagerly awaiting the arrival of a baby boy next month. And he will make child number 23 in our small group. And here's the thing. Our oldest is seven. Our next oldest just turned six. And we have 21 who are five and under. Okay? So we've often had multiple expectant mothers. We have two sets of twins. And we have said to each other, something's in the water around here. (laughs) Or maybe more soberly, maybe you just left a job or an employer where it was a toxic culture. And as you've described the situation to your family and your friends, you say something like, it's really bad. There's something in the water. Are you tracking with me? Now, here's the thing. I, you know, my desire for us, for this place, this church, for each one of you and for all of our guests, for our neighbors, is that each time we come away from this body, we would say, love is in the water here. Love's in the water here. And so I ask myself, what have I been putting in the water lately? What have I been putting in the water lately? Second thing I have in mind, love is in the water, would be the branch, the the vine and branch analogy that Jesus gives us in John 15. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So Jesus says that we're like a branch growing in the vine. And if we remain firmly rooted, then we'll bear fruit. And so if you think of an actual vine and some of the tissues that are involved there, and I had to go back to, you know, grade school biology to remember xylem and phloem and which one does which, but the xylem tissues carry water through the plant out to the branch and to the leaf. 
And along with that water come all the minerals that the plant needs to grow. As we abide in the love of Christ, we receive spiritual water and all the nourishment that we need to grow and be healthy in him. And the most critical thing in that water, as it were, is his love. It's why he says, abide in my love. If you want to be strengthened by grace, abide in the love of Christ. Third example, love is in the water. David Foster Wallace, some of you might be familiar with him, was an author and a social critic. And in 2005, he gave the commencement address at Kenyon College in Ohio. The speech was titled, This is Water, Some Thoughts About Living a Compassionate Life. Here's how he started. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, What's water? And of course, where Wallace is going is he's encouraging these students, he's encouraging us to pay attention to the things we take the most for granted, like a fish would do with water. And it's a fascinating speech. Words like idolatry and worship show up along the way. So if you want to check it out, this is water, David Foster Wallace. And if you listen to it, it's interesting because that story of the fish and the water totally disappears and doesn't show up again until it sort of makes a backdoor entrance right at the very end. So I'm going to combine a few lines, but here's how he wraps it all up. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and being able truly to care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad, petty, he says, unsexy ways every day. That is real freedom. I know that this stuff probably doesn't sound fun and breezy or grandly inspirational the way a commencement speech is supposed to sound. What it is, as far as I can see, is the capital T, truth. It has everything to do with simple awareness, awareness of what is so real and essential, so hidden in plain sight all around us, all the time, that we have to keep reminding ourselves over and over, this is water. This is water. I so wish David Foster Wallace had found the capital T truth. Three years after that speech, he wrote a note to his bride and took his own life. But he saw many things very clearly, and one of them is how important it is to love other people and to sacrifice for them in the small ways, the ways that only God will ever really see. But he's got a problem. He doesn't give us any ground for this kind of morality. Where does it come from? Well, we have a ground, don't we? Who sacrificed himself for you to atone for all of your sin, for all the myriad petty little ways that we sin against God each and every day? The things that only you and God know about. We have a Savior. We have a ground of love. And so like the fish in the story, we have to remember day after day, love is in the water. Love is water. In him we live and move and have our being. And so this is why love is the water in which the biblical commands 
swim. If you notice, we abide in love. We bear with one another in love. And as Ephesians 4 goes on, we're going to speak the truth one another in love. We're going to build one another up in love. And so if you're doing any of these things, if you're speaking the truth, if you're bearing with, and love isn't in it, then you're just a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. We cannot be a nourished and growing, happy and holy people without abiding in the love of Christ, without living lives of patient and sacrificial love for his sake. And so if you want to be a Christian, you have to know that this is the way it is. It is a way of love. It is a way of love. This is the way. And yes, if you're a Star Wars fan, I am channeling the Mandalorian. This is the way. But come to the fount of living waters and hear him. He's saying, I am the way. Come to me if you thirst. I'll give you drink. And you'll never be thirsty again. In his water is love. All right, the second theme. Love is under authority. Love is under authority. And this is a crucial one because it's actually a pretty gnarly problem for Christians living in a post-Christian society. I'm not sure if you noticed, but love happens to be really in right now in our culture. And it means very different things to those of us who abide in Christ compared to those who do not. Love is an heirloom of Christianity in our society. It's an heirloom. And like the Israelites plundered the Egyptians when they departed, I almost think it's kind of in the reverse. It feels like the pagans are plundering love from us. I don't like that. Now, not to be too cute about it, uh, but consider the little phrase, in love, in love. We just saw how love is the water in which we swim. All these, you know, our whole life is to be lived in love. Love is the context for it all. How do we use in love on a day-to-day basis in our society? It's, you know, it's something that kind of comes into us almost from the outside. We're almost invaded by it. And I couldn't help but think of Buddy the Elf. I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it, right? So maybe I'm being a little cheeky parsing out in love like that. But I do think it's actually pointing us to something real. Think about our cultural icons. How do they counsel us? What does your heart tell you? Listen to your heart. And why is this? Why is this? Well, not only are we looking inside to discover what we love, but we're also doing it in order to act in accord with the love we find there. We're giving, you know, we're giving ourselves a blank check to justify our actions by our own spontaneous desires. And it's probably most obvious in the area of sexual love. And so <laughs> I thought of lyrics to the song Who You Love by John Mayer, whose music I do really like. And he sings it with Katy Perry. I've fought against it hard enough to know that you love who you love, who you love. Oh, you can't make yourself stop dreaming who you're dreaming of. If it's who you love, then it's who you love. It's just a song. But that's what's in the water. And that logic gets dark very quickly. There's nothing stopping that from being a rationale for the sexualization of children. And in fact, I was just 
an observer of a panel in which a parent was talking about her 12-year-old child who is physically transitioning genders right now. Here's some things I heard. We all want the same thing. We all love our kids. In our home, we want our children to know they are loved and accepted. We want to live our truth. And I'll tell you, this was not some, you know, edgy, cultural, revolutionary type. This was a very soft-spoken, kindly, upper-middle-class, suburban mom from her living room. And we're vulnerable to this way of thinking. We said love is the language for believers. It's in the water, right? So the culture is speaking our language. The language of love is a Christian heirloom, like we said. But notice what's going on. Think about the evangelistic yard signs you have in your neighborhood, as I'm sure just as I do mine. In this house, we believe love is love. But even apart from the area of sex and romance, the messages are everywhere to love yourself above all else. So here's a book title. Love Yourself First, How to Heal from Toxic People, Create Healthy Relationships, and Become a Confident Woman. Dominic Ricciatello is some sort of internet personality. Apparently, he's got 300,000 followers on Twitter. It said 299.5, which looked a little fishy to me. But here's a quote. You have to grow. You have to be. You have to love yourself unconditionally. And we encounter stuff like this every day, right? We, we talked about the yard signs. And in our city, I think in these twin cities, love is now both just and the justifier This is not the love that we're commanded to. This is idolatry. This is idolatry. This is making human beings out to be God. Because only God can look inside his own heart, as it were, to justify his love, to justify his actions. Only God can love himself unconditionally. God is love. But for you and for me, our love is commanded. Our love is under authority. Love is under authority. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Above all these, put on love. Be imitators of God and walk in love. In fact, when Jesus was asked to identify what's the greatest commandment, he went to two, and not just any two, but the two that command our loves most supremely. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so we have no freedom who we will love. Our loves are commanded. Our love is under authority. And we're actually commanded to love everyone. Owe no one anything except to love each other. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And we're even commanded, are we not, about what not to love. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so what's, what's the conclusion? Biblical love, 22, uh, 2022 love, not the same thing not the same thing. And so either we are going to submit ourselves to God's authority 
or we will put ourselves in his place, choosing whom and what and how to love. And so I urge you to consider especially our, pat, our, our commandment in Ephesians 4, verse 2 this morning to bear with one another in love. Are you submitting your love to the Lord? Are you bearing with those who are difficult to bear with? It's not easy. It's not easy to do. We need to be strengthened by grace for this task. And so consider Jesus, consider his love. John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's our Savior. And this scene from the Last Supper leads us right into application theme number three. Love is from God. Love is from God. So if we're going to be strengthened by grace for love, we have to go to the place where all the love came from. Listen again to John 15. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then as he prays to his Father down in chapter 17, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. But especially we see that love is from God in 1 John 4. So you can go ahead and turn there. 1 John 4. I'm actually going to read a large chunk because it's just so beautiful. And really it captures everything we've been talking about so far. 1 John 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. So there it is right off the bat. Love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Love's in the water. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Love is under authority. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Down to verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected within us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. 
Where does love come from? Where does it come from? It comes from God. Which means it's not from you. You don't have to look inside yourself to find what you love. You don't have to even conjure up love as a Christian seeking to obey the Lord. You don't have to conjure it up from inside. Don't try to be your own fountain of living waters. You have one. Look away from yourself. Look, look up. Look to the Savior. Look to the fountain. And this is love. Not that we have loved him, but that he has loved us. I know for so many, the love of God is something you know, you believe, but it's hard to experience. And in that, I weep with you. I want to encourage you this morning. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Remember Ephesians 3. We're all weak. I mean, at the end of the day, we're just different shades of the same weakness. We need to be strengthened by grace for love. So I know you've asked God before, but, but keep asking. Lord, would you pour out your love into my heart? Would you, would you give me strength to be able to even bear it? And for all of us, my prayer with this sermon is that whatever else you do in your Bible reading and spiritual engagement, may the love of God be your port of destination. I think, what, what's, the, what's the lyric? A haven of rest that we sang about in the first song. Take time to linger in the love of God. Do it long enough so that your heart warms up because we usually start in a pretty cold place. Do it long enough for it to get in the water of your day. And my desire is that God's love would break upon us like, and I don't want to be blasphemous, but just like the ridiculous and hilarious thing that it is because of all the unexpected things that you could imagine. What is more unexpected than that God would love you (laughs) Right? What is more apparently contradictory than that the holy God has loved us, has loved me? See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. So see what kind of love it is. What kind. It's like, what species of love is this? What species? I remember Tim Keller saying, It's like it's saying, what universe does God's love come from? The message puts it this way. Just look at it. We are called children of God. That's who we really are. And so may we come to know and to believe the love God has for us. And part of me just wanted to stop there, but I do want to close with an encouragement to obedience. And so let's finish out back in 1 John chapter 4, shall we? Verse 20. 1 John 4 verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So back at the very beginning, I had mentioned, you know, the disruption that we're experiencing in the broader evangelical communion. Take it for what it's worth. This is my recommendation to us. In addition to spending more time than ever soaking in the love of God for you, give a ton of attention to the heart work that you need to bear with others, particularly those who you see something online and you just want to roll your eyes 
who feel like an enemy even. That's where it gets nitty gritty. That's where the rub is. And then ask God for discernment to understand and navigate the sharp disagreements that we have. And you're probably going to have to make choices along the way. I agree with this. I can't agree with that. That's okay. That's actually necessary. But let love be the water in which those choices swim. And especially if you have to do it among one another here at this church. Let's pray together and go to the table. Oh Lord, your, your love for us is unfathomable. We cannot get to the bottom. We, we could get to the bottom of Lake Tahoe. We can't get to the bottom of your love and we will spend an eternity exploring it, feasting on it, communing in it. And so I pray, Lord, would you strengthen this people? Would you strengthen me, each one of us, for your love? It is, it's more than we can bear and we feel the tension of it rubbing up against the, the day-to-day realities of flesh and sin, temptation. We need your help, Lord. We thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. I pray that as we celebrate communion now, that you would help us to feast on your love. Help us to feast on it. May it be a fellowship event for us here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.